Hey there, history fans, and welcome back to our We're History episode. Yay! <laughs> Where we seek to bring you tales of the strange and unusual throughout history. Hope everyone had a great spooky season. So today we've got a special guest on the show. Say hello to Caitlin. Hey everybody, my name is Caitlin, also known as Nilton Ameda Online if you are a fan of DeviantArt and YouTube, as well as Project K2 for my more professional works. So, Melissa, thank you very much for having me on here. You're very welcome. You might also know her because she created our logo. That I did, and I am responsible for the small icon edits within that logo. <laughs> She's got everything covered. <laughs> All right, so uh, what's the subject? You kind of had me in the dark there. What um, what surprises are you so eager to share? <laughs> so today, since I didn't have any weird histories during Halloween, I've got a Halloween-esque weird history for everybody. So this is sort of um, strangely colored people throughout history. Are we talking about albinos? No, that's, that's more common. We're talking okay. about the blue people, the green people, and the yellow people. Will this include the doctor who injected himself with silver that turned himself blue? He's he's mentioned for like a sentence, but no. Oh, okay. No, I, that's just from ingesting colloidal silver, which he should not ingest silver at all. Please don't. But hey, for science. Hey, if you want to be a, a, a real life science experiment, I mean, go ahead. It's your choice. Just, just make, make it, it in small doses at a time, though. Yeah. Yeah. Like arsenic. Indeed. <laughs> no, we're so um we're gonna go in order. So for blue, we're actually gonna talk about the blue fugit family of Kentucky. I think I vaguely heard about this before, where some people were kind of spooked by some children that actually had a cooler skin pigment. And by cooler, I mean like a cooler in temperature, you know, how co colors go by warm temperatures and cool temperatures. Well, cooler tends to be more towards a blue hue instead of a yellow, warmer hue. So that, that's all I can really recall upon remembering any of the YouTube videos that I've watched or played in the background. It'd be something similar to that. Okay. So there was a family in the Appalachia woods of Kentucky that have actually lived out there for now over 200 years. And it's just this one family. Just this one family. I really hope they didn't procreate through incest. They did. Oh, wonderful. So I, I guess that's how they kept their blue gene pure. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I'll get into that. That is very bizarre, but also scientifically intriguing. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I've got pictures. The first Fugit in Kentucky was a French orphan by the name of Martin Fugit, and he settled in the area known as Troublesome Creek in 1820, which is a fun name for a creek. Yeah, very, very convenient, I guess, <laughs> considering yeah. the circumstances. Very much, yep. So Martin would go on to marry a woman named Elizabeth Smith, who at the time was described as being as pale and white as the mountain laurel that blooms in the hollows. Well, that's very poetic. <laughs> yeah. Very, very poetic. Yep. Kentucky style. 
I don't even want to know what Kentucky style is <laughs> um, in that regard. Other than chicken? I don't know. They're making the sky. <laughs> You're pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly enough, and scientifically interestingly, uh, unbeknownst to both Martin and Elizabeth, they each actually carry a rare recessive gene that ended up leading four of their seven children to be born with blue pigmented skin. That's very bizarre, especially coming from the, the woman's end. Mm -hmm. it, it, I mean, what are the odds of meeting a woman that carries the same recessive gene? I mean, especially I mean, during that time. Right. I can't, I couldn't even, in, in my research, I couldn't even find how frequent it would be to ha even have this gene in your gene pool. There wasn't a percentage that was found or nothing in any genealogy papers not unless regarding a subject. Not unless I delved into a really hard to read scientific journal. I'm sure it's probably in there somewhere. But still, that it's still very, very interesting how, pun intended, out of the blue, a woman with the same blue pigment gene married a man and procreated with, with him who also carried that gene. And he's a French orphan and she's from Kentucky. Yeah, unless they're very distant cousins, I'm not, I'm not sure how that actually works, but hey, sometimes things fall randomly into place. Yeah, oh yeah. All right, so what about this family that most strikes you as uh, intrigued or more curious? Oh, pretty much the whole story. <laughs> Okay, then let's carry on. All right, then. Um, over time, so the, the the seven children actually grew up and got married. Mm -hmm. However, as we've uh, alluded to before, because of the, now it's the 1820s is when they meet, so we're talking probably the children, you have them and then around by 1830. Lack of infrastructure at the area. I mean, there weren't even roads leading into Troublesome Creek until the 1910s, 1910, mm -hmm. 1910. Because it's incredibly rural Kentucky. So, right. So there was very little establishment during that time. Right. And a very small town. So in order to keep the family growing with not a lot of other people around, they married each other or relatives related to them. Well, then, <laughs> I guess they didn't have any other choice. No, not really. No, I mean, if you want the family <laughs> to continue and you are isolated in the woods, I mean, that's kind of the only way, really. One of the sons that was born with blue skin actually ended up marrying his mother's sister. So his aunt. Yeah. He married yeah. his aunt. Yeah. Because of this inbreeding, it actually has allowed this blue trait within the family to continue from the 1820s at least until the 1970s. Wow. That long? Mm -hmm. Well, Technically, and I'll get into why this actually happens to this particular family, but technically it could still happen today, but there's a cure for it too. So wait, how have they lived this long to last all the way up until the 1970s even? I mean, how far apart were their family gaps? Did they, did they have a second and a half cousin marry a half brother's father or something? 
you know, all those added lines that say, oh, I'm your distant sixth cousin, or I am, I am your sis, your sister's cousin, your sister's sister's cousin, or your mother's father. How, how, how does that work? I could show you a picture of the genealogy tree. That, that would actually be interesting to even provide for, um, maybe linking it in the description of the podcast. Oh, all our, our sources will be listed in the podcast, but I meant for this, I can add it into your chat. Okay. But not all the members that were born into the family all exhibited blue skin. Um, it was just those that happened because it's a recessive gene. So mm-hmm. if you happen to get both of the recessive genes from both parents, then you're more likely to end up being blue rather than not. So whether you, you could be a carrier or you can actually be born blue. So not everybody in the family was blue, but everyone in the family at the least had a part of this recessive gene. Right. Oh yeah. Now taking a glance at the family tree, it is it is literally a network of obvious family connections yeah. <laughs> with marrying and procreating through through each other, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely apparent where the the blue gene actually surfaces. Yeah. I was say it's not everyone, but the, if you look at the picture at the very top of the article, mm-hmm. like one out of four, maybe. Oh, yeah. I can also see um, towards, let's see, the one, two, three, uh, four, the fifth generation from what I can see, the two that were very, very distant relatives actually got together. Mm -hmm. So so in a sense, they were, I guess, controlling their genealogy without realizing, but at the same time, when you're banging a family member, you're literally banging a family member. I mean, there's no way else around it incest is incest there's no wincest no i don't care what anyone says no there isn't my i mean my my concern so much with the inbreeding isn't necessarily the blue trait that was passed down it's more of the medical issues you get when you don't have an adequate population size would you like to elaborate more on that the Habsburgs. say no more Classic example. <laughs> Say no more. Or King Tut's family. True, but I don't know how much inbreeding was going on with them. I mean, just look at enough Charles inbreeding Charles. to make his two children stillborn, like entirely. That's not specifically a trait just of inbreeding, but it's most likely. But you'll get a lot of a lot of physical uh, deformations and medical ailments due to inbreeding for sure especially True. if the population of the family itself is very small mm-hmm. but still we're using royal families as examples which are also perfect examples because they were their own isolated culture even though they were within civilization mm-hmm. you gotta keep the bloodline yeah. pure <laughs> In this case, while also <laughs> tainting it. Well, I mean, what do we call royal blue blood, right? Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Gotta keep the blue bloodline pure. Mm-hmm. 
continuing though, despite having this blue skin tone, the Fugits actually themselves were respected members of their community. They were actually accepted by people, which I think is really cool. And one resident even said, they look like anybody else, except they have the blue color. Well, if they live normally, then sure. That's exactly what they said. Everyone is like, they, they act like us. They look like us. They just have a different color. Yeah. It's just a rare blue color. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a pretty good attitude to have, especially for the 1800s. Oh, by far. Yeah. Uh, the 1800s rural America, at the very least. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So after more than 100 years of this inbreeding, some of the descendants in the 1960s actually began to resent this genetic trait, as I can imagine. And they felt that this unusual skin tone actually made them feel like they were outsiders and different. Even though they looked and acted like everybody else, they didn't technically look like everybody else. They resented their traits because it alienated them. Right, right. I think by that point, I mean, you're it's now modern society rather than the isolation society. I think you've got all this transportation technology, communication technology that was created in the 1900s. So the world is a lot more connected, which we can certainly see right now with online culture, which was the point of it in the first place. But it breeds a lot of bullying as well, too. Everything these days is now instant. Now, do you know if any of those family members are alive in this modern day and age? Are there any available descendants that you've come across in your research? There was a man named Benji uh, who was born in 1975. As far as I know, he's still alive. He was born with blue skin, uh, but it, it faded over time. He wasn't born with both recessive traits. I see. He's at the, if you look at the, the chart, he's at the very bottom. Yeah, so he was born blue, but then faded into normalcy. Right, which didn't happen for all family members that were born blue. So these uh, siblings, you know, this, I guess they were brother and sister. I don't know if they were cousins, well, cousins and a brother. You know, what this family is hard to tell. I know I don't mm-hmm. need to be read about that. I just, I don't know what to call them. But two of the children at the time decided that they were going to go visit a hematologist at the University of Kentucky named Madison Cowan. And Cowan was actually able to determine why the Fugits were blue. What was the cause? A rare hereditary blood disorder that apparently creates excessive levels. And I'm not going to pronounce this correctly. Um, methemoglobin in the blood. So there's hemoglobin, which carries mm-hmm. oxygen to the blood. And if you think about it, for those of fairer skin, because of the red and the hemoglobin, Caucasian people at the least will have uh, typically a pinkish tint to the skin tone because of the red and the hemoglobin. In this case, it's a blue version, literally. But the blue version is usually non-functional. But in this case, it's functional. So the hemoglobin carrying the oxygen to their blood, this case is blue and not red. So basically they were meth babies if we want to use the scientific term. Yeah, but not in the right way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But still, that is, that's so intriguing and very interesting. 
well, when I mean, there's a separate a separate branch type of blood that still functions normally. It's just literally the opposite of red. Right, right. I didn't even know that there was a non-functional version of a, a globin. I just thought it was all red. I, I mean, I'm not a genetic scientist or anything, so I'm not aware of this. This is not something they usually teach you in high school biology class. No. They just teach you about red hemoglobin, if anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, darker deoxygenated blood. Yeah. Oh, oh, and your blood is not red. It's yellow. That's the plasma. Yep. <laughs> I've been watching Dr. Dr. Mike. Yeah. Yes. There you go, Dr. Mike. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love watching Dr. Mike. He's always so much fun. Oh yeah, he's amazing. Yeah. Also, Dr. Cowan said that if the family had not inbred for as long as they did, it would have just been a rarity in a child born with blue skin rather than a frequency with children born with blue skin. And the you asked me about the living relative right now, Benji. Mm-hmm. According to him, his grandmother on his, I can't remember, his father's side or his mother's side, a woman named Luna, he described her as being the bluest woman you've ever seen. Oh, my. So, but he wasn't born. He was born with light blue skin and then again faded over time. But according to Colin and the other family members who were alive in the 60s, because of their increasing embarrassment over having this blue skin, he was actually able to devise a cure, which is a rather simple one, to be honest. What what was it? More blue. What? More blue. How how does that cure? How do you cure that by adding more to the mix? So the, he created a medicine in a pill form. And one of the chemicals in the medicine is called methylene blue dye. Mm-hmm. And this in particular allows the methemoglobin to turn into hemoglobin. Ah, so it's a molecular reaction. Mm-hmm. And apparently, and I would love to see this in person, just, just seeing it makes an action. Just to see it in action, I think it would be amazing to see. Apparently within just a few minutes of ingesting this pill, a blue skinned family member will fade to pink like, like a normal caucasian color with a pink tint that's so cool Within minutes so wait is it a permanent cure or no. a no, temporary cure the pill. okay yeah I, I kind of figured because it's in the genes you can't exactly cure a gene with just one pill no no the only way to cure to have your family family no longer frequently blue is to intermarry outside your family. Mm-hmm. But that's that's so cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as as we mentioned, there is a graph on our source notes. It's uh, the allthatsinteresting.com. And as Caitlin mentioned at the beginning, there is also other people with blue skin. Uh, it's not only it doesn't only happen by just hereditary genes. It also can be caused by things you eat, such as metal poisonings. For science. Yay. <laughs> so there's a type of metal poisoning called argyria, and it's actually caused by excessive amounts of ingesting silver, typically colloidal silver. 
And this would be the case of Paul Kerrison, which I, I didn't elaborate on, but there is certainly a lot of information online about it. Yeah, pictures of him have surfaced online when I went through YouTube videos, and he really does look like Papa Smurf. You just need to put the red hat on top of him, and he's good. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, he acts, again, normally. Normal, he doesn't seem too affected, at least based from what I've seen. Of course, there like a lot of us researchers, you, uh, I, did, I never really dove into the, the minute details on this guy. I mean, I've heard of him, but I've never done a deep dive. In it. But I might watch a, a YouTube video or two later just for some more information for fun. But yeah, from what I've seen, he's relatively normal. He just has that odd skin pigmentation because of that. Well, that's all I have on the blue family. Shall we move on to green? Yes. Is this about the green children? It is about the green children. Yes, I knew it. I can't think of anything else where people had green toned to their skin. That are not in any fantasy world. Well, yes, I did find a very, uh, I'll talk, to it, talk about it in a, in a few minutes, but I did find a medical reason why a person may possibly have a green tint to their skin um let me take some guesses here do they have any any genes that allowed them to process say the sunlight like plants do with their chlorophyll no okay and then another thing is are they growing algae on their skin like sloths <laughs> do sloths grow algae algae's from the sea well Sloths grow a kind of algae within their fur. And that's why or they sometimes... Is it an sometimes, algae or is it a mold? It, from, from what I've read in National Geographic, it's an algae. But uh, feel free to correct me on that in, in the future. Yeah. I, I didn't know that was a thing. I will look that up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sloths are greenish in texture in the wild because they grow algae slash mold within their fur. And it also helps them blend in with the trees. Sure. I can see that. I'll get to it in the theories section once I, I, I cover the children of Woolpit. Okay. There's a theory section. <laughs> well then. Uh -huh. So to start off, uh, around 1150 or so during the reign of King Stephen, two young children, a brother and a sister, were found by a reaper, which is a medieval term for a harvester, as they emerged from a wolf trap which generally is a very wide pit that is used to ensnare and capture wolves. And they were taken to the nearby town of Woolpit, or in Old English, Wolf Pit. Literally. Yeah, there's a theme here. And it's located in Suffolk, England. So as the story goes, the boy and the girl didn't speak English. They wore strange clothing, ate only raw vegetables, or in some of my sources said only beans. And the weirdest thing about them is that they had green skin. And this isn't some fairy tale. This is this is actually documented. Yeah, this isn't a Grimm's fairy tale. So what other information did you find out? Oh, lots. So uh, where was I at? Um, 
So when the children were brought to the town of Woolpit, they were actually adopted by a local knight, Sir Richard Decane. And over time, they learned to eat more than just raw vegetables or at least beans. And their unusual skin tone actually began to fade away and return to a normal Caucasian skin tone. That's so bizarre. Yeah. Well, I'll wait till the theories. <laughs> They're bizarre. <laughs> so according to the story, over time, the brother became depressed and got sick and eventually died from an unknown illness. The sister- Aww. Yeah, that, that sucks. I don't know what happened to these children, but then maybe like three years after you find a good home and somebody feeds you and teaches you English and, and takes you in as one of their own and then your brother dies from getting sick. I'm just like, oh. He committed undeath. <laughs> so while the sister was able to learn English and then she eventually, she was baptized and integrated into medieval culture uh, in Suffolk. And is said to have taken the name of Agnes. And she eventually married an archdeacon of Eli named Richard Barr. And he was said to have possibly even been an ambassador to the succeeding king, Henry II. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So now, one, with the story being very old, and two, with very little records and mostly word of mouth, it's not certain as to what, if any, parts of the story are actually true. Indeed. For all we know, someone might have been smoking something and told a story randomly around a fire or something. Right. I mean, the Grimm's fairy tales had to come from somewhere, but mostly they're fantasy. Hans Christian Andersen's stories have to come from somewhere, but they're mostly fantasy. Of course. Mm -hmm. Every story has a root. Every story has a root. I don't see what the moral of this story is if it's in terms of Grimm's fairy tales or Hans Christian Andersen fairy tales, but I can find one. <laughs> Don't learn English. Oh, Refuse ouch. society. Continue eating your vegetables. Raw. <laughs> <laughs> that, there, there's the moral of the story. Don't talk to strange men. They'll take you in and adopt you. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be married into royalty. Yeah. Oh no. Well, you don't really want to do that anyway, but oh no. Give <laughs> me rules for me. All right. So let's uh, hear the theories. Oh, I'm not, not done just don't... yet, but okay. I'll get to that. So in terms of the chronicles of the children from around the time, we know that there are two. And the first is the Chronicon Angelicum Canum. My Latin's terrible. And then the Historia Rerum Angelicarum. So the Chronicon was actually written in 1189. And it hmm. was written by the sixth abbot of Kogashal named Ralph. Just Ralph. Just Ralph. Okay. Ra- Ralph the head abbot, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and he actually lived nearby. Uh, Wolf, Wolf, I'm going to say Wolf Pit. There we go. Might as well. It's the same. Wolf Pit. And Wolf Pit is the same as Wolf Pit. And so he lived nearby, but he was not directly involved in the story. But according to his record of this, the two children, the knowledge of their story came from Sir Richard Decane himself. So we, that one, I would say, is probably a little more definitive, if anything, if the story did actually come from the, the Sir Richard Kane. Because whatever the king said at that time was 
word. Well, he's it the was, one who raised them. So, yeah. It was law. No, no, not King Kane, as in Michael Kane. Oh, okay. My apologies. I misinterpreted that. No, Richard, a King Richard wouldn't be for um, an, another hundred years or so. Okay. <laughs> so, Kane, like an old Kane. man's Kane. Yeah, or Michael Kane. Okay. Yeah. And the next, the, the second chronicle we have came in around 1220 by William of Newburgh, who was a monk and a historian, and decided to write down his knowledge of this very bizarre th- story. Uh, although William didn't actually live near Woolpit, and his publication, which was written long after the story takes place, his sources mm-hmm. for his text, he says, come from quote unquote, trustworthy sources. What was trustworthy at that time? Anything you wanted it to be. Fly my messenger pigeon. Go research and bring me back all the information. But you know, I would be like asking crows. Like, oh, I can speak crow. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've absolutely no idea. The trees can talk. But he is a monk and a historian, so that means he can read and and certainly write. So he certainly. He was educated. He's more educated than most people at the time, for sure. So he probably has a little more resources available to him. Well, I I guess that's more credible for the time period. Yeah. No, it said after the sister, when she learned English, she was able to tell the citizens of the town who they were and what happened to them. And she stated that it came from an underground homeland called St. Martin's Land. And according to her, everything was green and the sky was always twilight. And in one version, version being the optimum word there, of her story, she says that they were herding her father's cattle when they heard a loud noise. Next, they knew they found themselves at the bottom of the wolf trap. Huh. So, everyone was under the same sky, it's just... Maybe their green pigment was hindering the actual light from the sky. Because if it was twilight, always twilight, then certainly the farmers at that time would have also seen that it was also twilight. If they came from Britain, yes, maybe. But maybe they didn't. What if some solar storm happened and the aurora borealis went that low maybe something happened then you know i hadn't heard that one i have no idea i don't even i just sprang from my head i'm sorry i know no, i'll take any tears i couldn't even find exactly how young these children were based off of the the standard caricature that you see the drawing they look like they're seven and eight, but they could have been a little older. They could have been a little younger. I have no idea. Well, even looking at the the supposed record of the the girl's marriage, I mean, women, or I should say girls, married really young at that time, too. So even then, it would be a bit difficult to determine what the age range was or how how far the age gap was between her and her brother or her and yeah i mean the only thing i could think of that you would give you any kind of definitive answer if 
the records are correct and these children showed up in 1150 and then she married an archdeacon you would find records of that marriage certificate if it was still available of her marrying the archdeacon and you could go backwards from there but i i could not find any potential ages for these children but they were certainly in single digits huh. at least going off the pictures then again pictures well then what else do you have to share with us before we move on to any more theories the rest of this is all just theories <laughs> all right let's get into it there's a lot more so another version uh, of what she says goes as such and that they followed a herd of cattle into a cave and then became disoriented and then suddenly they began to hear bells ringing followed the sound out of the cave and when they emerged they found themselves in a wolf trap and wolf pit rather than on their farming land and saint martin's land now the main question that i have for to counter that is how close was the cave and was the cave above the ground? Was there even a cave? We don't even know where St. Martin's land is, if mm -hmm. there is even a St. Martin's land. So according to a PDF that I found, which is written about the Woolpit children and written by a man named John Clark, he actually talks about different places and scholars who think they might know which St. Martin it actually is. And there's several. I just I just had a thought um, if they lived in an underground cave system and they spoke about the sky always being twilight, perhaps the sky that they were describing were actually bioluminescent glowworms. There are some cave systems that have those glowworms. Well, that's so that, that could be a possibility. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, according to records, when she talked about the sun, she was like, we, we, the sun doesn't shine where I'm from. So you never know. So that's a major clue right there. Mm -hmm. Well, there are several St. Martins just in the area of Suffolk alone, let alone in, in, in England and outside of England. So one of the first mentioned is Fornham St. Martins, which is north of Bury St. Edmunds which is mm -hmm. near Suffolk. And then there's St. Martin's 100 in Kent, St. Martin's Le Grand in London, which is an actual sanctuary for children, St. Martin of Tours, and that's several different places around France. And even the St. Martin himself, who in Flanders is the patron saint of children. Wow. And there are uh, at least one holiday where they celebrate St. Martin and it's like a children's holiday. Now, did that spawn because of these children? No, it, it spawned because of St. Martin as the patron saint of children. Oh, okay. No, it's, it, it's a religious day. I gotcha. Mm -hmm. So we don't know where this, this actual St. Martin's land was. And when I first started looking up, I kept getting St. Martin's in the Caribbean and go, that's not right. Yeah, That's a bit far. <laughs> if there is the theory that they came from a cave system, then that's all you need to do to deduce which St. Martin's to look look at or look near. Well, that's one version that it came from a cave system. The other one said that they just followed a herd of cattle and fell into a wolf pit. There was no cave involved in that story. Ah, true that. Mm -hmm. So, and in that case, it could be anywhere. 
Right, exactly. That's the point. There are debates as to the origins of the children's green skin as well. Some of them make sense. Some of them make certain a little more sense from a medical standpoint, and some are just out there. All right. Um, what do we want to start with? Medical reality or hypothetical fantasy? Oh, I like to end on hypothetical fantasy. All right. Let's, <laughs> uh, let's hear the science first. <laughs> so the first story goes that they were in the charge of a caretaker in Norfolk, which is near the Suffolk border. And this caretaker tried to poison the children with arsenic and then took them off to the woods at the Norfolk Suffolk border and left them to die. That's brutal. Well, yeah, well, yeah I guess if you've got extra children and no food to feed them, I don't know. But there's a big issue with this story. Arsenic doesn't turn your skin green. Think about this. How many, especially in the Victorian times, how many black widows and serial killers would likely have been caught if their victims' skins turned green after they died? Everyone also would point at the, the apothecaries. That too. <laughs> but the apothecaries usually had records of people coming and going and buying something for such. So, I mean, they, so they would still get caught regardless. Right, exactly. I'm saying. You could be a wife trying to put poison your husband with arsenic. You go to the apothecary and you say, I want to get this much arsenic because I've got rats, which was a common rat poisoning used at the time. And you sign off and because they got a catalog saying, you know, such and so and so bought this much rat poisoning on this day for this much. It's your ledger. And she takes it home and eventually the husband dies. But when they go to bury him, his skin is green. And if it's common enough that you know that arsenic turns your skin green, they would have suspected arsenic poisoning without having to do any kind of internal testing, which wasn't available oh, for sure. at the time. So arsenic will give you blotchy skin and discolored skin, but it will not turn your skin green. However, there are pigments in dyes that use like a copper arsenic mix that will give you a very rich green color, such as Paris green or Shields green, which was used at the time to dye a whole manner of things, especially for use in the Victorian homes, such as wallpaper and dresses and kids' clothes and things like that, and toys that kids would put in their mouth and then get arsenic poisoning. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't, arsenic poisoning specifically does not turn your skin green. The dye might, however. But the dye was not used in medieval England. So that's a debunk theory, just from that. It's busted. I totally busted. The next one, I think, has a lot of potential to it. It's a much more scientific explanation. And it's said that the children may possibly have suffered from an iron deficiency called chlorosis. So you were close on the chlorophyll, but a human version called chlorosis, mm -hmm. or known as hypochromic anemia. And hmm. it's a deficiency that is actually called caused by malnutrition, which can turn the skin a, a greenish color. It's not bright green, but it's like a, a, a greenish tint, but it's not full green. Now that also begs the question of 
what their weight looked like should it have been linked to malnourishment. Well, if the story is correct and they were when they were found, they were only eating raw beans or at least raw vegetables or whatever they could find in the forest, they were certainly malnourished. Yeah, the beans would be the only would have only been their source of protein. If the whatever beans they had had enough protein to begin with. Yeah, I don't know what kind of mind you, the soil back then would have been a whole lot richer than it is today and probably would have had more protein to it. But each bean is going to have a different amount of protein. Of course. Well, what's really interesting about hypochromia is this particular condition previously known was was known as green sickness. And in my research, I, I was found that it was actually first written about in the 16th century and was known to have often been a case within adolescent girls and young women. Anemia is a thing. Yeah. We go through mm-hmm. it a lot. <laughs> yeah. What was even interesting and yet frustrating to me was that there was a recommendation in the 17th century following the uh, this newfound thing about women having slightly green skin due to having a, a major iron deficiency is that said there were people that was like well treat it with iron supplements but unfortunately this condition was not treated and was classified as a hysterical disease suffered by women and would be of course of course right yeah hysteria hysteria causes all the ailments in women i was just like it's it's interesting that first section and the last section of that sentence just so another theory getting towards the end here is that the children were of flemish descent flanders isn't too too far away and the children were actually uh, born to Flemish emigrants who had emigrated to England. And it said that the parents possibly were killed during the Battle of Fornham, which happened in 1173. That again gets you different dates. If the battle happened in 1173, and one of the dates I found for the children emerging to Woolpit was 1150, you've already got some different dates there too. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So Fornham St. Martins, as I've mentioned before, is one of the possible St. Martins, is actually separated from Woolpit by just a river. Hmm. So it's the very it's the closest St. Martins to Woolpit. And given the story that the children heard bells when they were wandering around, Barry St. Edmunds is nearby and they tend to ring church bells a lot. So it's posited that the children being orphaned, lost, and living on whatever foods they could find heard the bells coming from Bury St. Edmunds and followed them to the direction of Wolfpit. They were most likely curious. Well, they also were lost and hungry and heard the bells and thought, oh, people. True. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were kids. Yeah, especially if you're young, single-digit kids and you are lost in the woods you're gonna if you hear bells or hear that's where you'll go that's where you're gonna go yeah so the last story goes i've heard this before but i couldn't find a whole lot of resources on this and i'm not sure how i really feel about this one because i would probably 
I think this one's a bit debunked, but one, the last story goes is that the, the children's parents, again, being Flemish were clockmakers at that time and the middle and in, in the hundreds and the children's skin was green due to the dye that was using the manufacturing of these clocks that the parents would make much probably not unlike say the radium girls um, licking their, their their fine-tipped brushes to a point to dab on the radium on the watches but i don't know hmm. what kind of green dye would have been used in clocks at the time i don't know if green dye was expensive i don't know if green dye was easily made where you can make it from say beetles but I also don't know, it's dye. And you've done some painting, you can imagine this. Dye might get on your clothes in, in spots and might get on your skin in spots. But it dye, unless you get dunked in it, your whole body's not going to be green. Exactly. So it would take a powerful amount of dye to ingest, to simply turn yourself green. And even in a small body like a child, it would still take a significant amount to have any apparent visible effect. Well, I don't even know if ingesting dye is going to turn your skin green. You're just going to get sick from it, depending on what's in the dye in the first place. Plus, everything was much more toxic back then, too, with the materials. Depending on so, how you made it, yeah, it could have been. Now, if we're if we're going with a steampunk theory, perhaps they were children of the the clock makers, and they were exposed to, say, copper dust from all the grinding and shaping of the gears and all the the widgets and everything to make all the details in such clocks function. Uh, perhaps maybe that copper dust stuck to their skin and reacted because because sometimes think about it when you wear some copper jewelry it turns your skin greenish so that could be another possibility and given the fact that children's skin is very very tender and very thin i would say i would say fragile more like it they it could be more apparent that way but that is a bit of a stretch that's why i called it a, a steampunk theory well it could be copper copper arsenic too if you're gonna just dye the kids with shields green but it wasn't available back then at least not that we're aware of my i like a good steampunk theory uh, there are also outlandish theories which I, I have to put out here but i don't put any kind of weight on these that the children were aliens <laughs> that they were time travelers and that they were underground dwellers from within the earth. Not probably unlike mole people, maybe. Yeah, the underground one can be pretty far-fetched, aside from the glowworm sky. But other than that, yeah, aliens, unlikely. For sure. Time travelers, why? I mean, time travel doesn't exist yet, as proven by Stephen Hawking. And uh, to elaborate on that for uh, people who want to know about the Stephen Hawking and his time traveling theory, he actually invited people for a future party, waited until the party passed, and came to the conclusion that when no one showed up, time travel didn't exist. Yeah, I mean, whatever your thoughts, I mean, whether this is a real story, 
if this was even a real event, we may never actually know. Did it actually happen? Was it made up? What do you think? I wouldn't be surprised if it helped spawn some of Aesop's fables. I think that was written before the children of Wolfit. Any additions? <laughs> like Aesop's fables, the sequel. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> or any good good inspirations for any movies if they're not made by the asylum i can see the children of Woolpit being made into an asylum movie and i would watch it <laughs> <laughs> i mean i i only own one asylum movie and that is sherlock holmes and the t-rexes that would be a yeah. great movie to watch with with friends who are either drunk or just want to watch something stupid just because it's fun. Well, you're the only friend I have who I know would watch that with me and enjoy it. <laughs> but I try, I showed it to Lauren. We didn't watch it, but I showed it to Lauren once. Cause when I, I bought it, I was like, <laughs> you, you gotta just check that checks with this, this movie case out. You're not going to want to watch it. It's not your kind of movie. <laughs> because I know you like, you know, dumb movies, but this is just straight up stupid, but it's fun to me. I like horrible <laughs> movies. But then she's it's like, the asylum. it's asylum. So it's, it's Sherlock Holmes and the Victorian times with steampunk dinosaurs and Iron Man sort of. And, <laughs> yeah. All it needs for the children of Wolf Pit are explosions by Michael Bay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any other outlandish theories that you'd like to share or that you've come across in your research? Not for the children of Wolpit, nothing that I can think of. I like your steampunk theory. That's just fun. Showered in copper dust. Well, Although that, of... that would be a lot of copper dust. Yes. And unless there was a really early undocumented industrial revolution, I think that would be highly un unlikely. Unless they were, of course, rolling in it like some children play in ashes. Wait, go, uh, go back one. Wait, what? Unless they were rolling in, say, piles of copper dust, like children playing in ashes. Yeah, that children playing in ashes thing. What? That's a that was, thing? That, was, that was something that I did as a kid. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I, play, I was a dumb kid, and I played in the ashes in our backyard that were dumped from our fireplace. Okay. Yeah. So being a kid... That was uh, as dumb and as naive as can be. Saw maybe they could have seen piles of really soft dirt, and they wanted to play in it. Possibly, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it it's a very very large stretch there. Yeah. Well, would you like to go to our our last color on this journey? Sure. No, we're talking about people whose skin literally turned yellow, bright yellow. They have ascended. <laughs> well, <laughs> sort of. Um, I got confused before I go into this particularly. I got confused because I was trying to remember which yellow I was thinking of. At first, I thought this was because of radium. It's not, but I'll, I'll get into that in a minute. But speaking of the whole... Uh, bright rays and everything if you look at very old 1920s and 1930s cosmetic advertisements 
radium laden cosmetics and that was a big thing everything was covered in radium during that time oh no wonder everyone was so radiant right well if you look at the, the advertisements use radium cosmetics night cream and face powder but what's going on you've got like bright rays coming out from around the woman's face going i've got glowing skin because of radium and then everyone died of radioactive poisoning go figure yeah <laughs> It's it's like how back in the Victorian era, when the women would have lead paint or cosmetic materials applied to their faces, and they would get lead poisoning. That wasn't just Victorians. That's pretty much throughout most of history. That's that what the Egyptians were doing that. Even with the Egypt, okay. The Egyptians were doing that. The Georgians especially were doing that. Victorians were doing it. It's, it's been a thing throughout much of history. Hey, let's poison ourselves to be beautiful because pain is beauty. Humans aren't always the smartest of creatures. Oh, no. <laughs> Not at all. No, no, no. So to get into our last tale for today, we're going to go to England during World War One. Okay. Let's, so, uh, let's dive in. <laughs> so during the First World War, while men were off fighting the war, many women actually took to working in factories in order to help the war effort. It mm -hmm. was one type of factory that was essential was the munition factories. So in 1915, Britain actually saw a shortage of, shortage of shells for the war. <laughs> and yes. they decided to create the Ministry of Mun Musicians. God damn it. The Ministry of Munitions. I hate tongue twisters. <laughs> Same. <laughs> and the ministry's job was actually to control Britain's supply and output of war materials. And its first minister was a very energetic David Lloyd George. And when they advertised for women to help out in these factories in order to aid the war effort, they were flooded with applications from all over the country to come help out. Oh, my. And yeah. It's actually reported that by the end of the war, so from about 1915 to 1918, that between 700,000 and up, up to a million women had enlisted as munitionettes which is what they were called. That's kind of a thought came to mind. It's kind of like what is happening with the ports over here on the West coast in Long Beach, how there's such a, a shortage of even workers. The company is saying here, all of our applications are open. Come here. We'll train you. We need workers. We need to get these supplies out. Um, yeah, we need them. My job needs them. But I think what's going on right now isn't so much just that. It's also just a shortage of workers. Workforces. Just, just the workforce in general as a whole is very short right now. Mm -hmm. so. But even so, back then, they had a shortage of some sort because they only had women to work with. They didn't have men because they were all gone for the war. Yeah, yeah. Well, in a certain sense, even before that, they still technically had a shortage of a workforce because women were generally allowed to do a lot of work and you're literally they were stuck in the kitchen yeah <laughs> really eliminating half of the population to not aid in, in working and creating things i mean it's just man 
But these particular women that worked in these munition factories worked in very long hours in very, very hazardous conditions and working alongside very hazardous materials. And I don't doubt that. Yeah, yeah. You're making torpedoes and shells and bullets and yeah, it, things will happen. Yes. So one of the horrors that would happen is that some of these women would um, unfortunately pick up at well, some, a lot. Well, yeah, a lot of these women would eventually end up with TNT poisoning. Really? Mm-hmm. TNT poisoning? Yeah. I've so, actually never heard of that. Me neither. Apparently TNT contain, contains a chemical called picric acid. And picric acid has a tendency to turn your skin yellow when you touch it. Huh. Mm-hmm. Well then. Mm-hmm. So they literally were glowing. Bright yellow. Bright yellow. Yeah. Well, it wasn't radium, so I don't know if they were glowing so much, but they were certainly bright yellow. How explosive. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. One of the major, I mean, aside from other I don't want to call it workplace accidents, but they were. Um, Outside of TNT poisoning, working in a munitions factory, another major issue that could come up with is dying from literally the explosives. If you're packing a shell full of TNT and then you have to, before you put in the cap on it, you have to tamper down the TNT like you would gunpowder in a gun. Mm-hmm. If you tamp it down too hard, it will explode. You have to balance the chemical reaction. Right. You have to be very precise about it. I mean, so it's very, there were a lot of workplace accidents for sure. And deaths, lots of deaths. Oh, especially, especially in an explosives factory. Imagine the chain of events that would trigger just from one explosion. How many lives lost then? Well, think about it this way too. I know this one happened more so in World War II, but even in World War One, if you had a plane flying by, and we had the Blitzkrieg in London in World War II, and one of the places that they would try to bomb were the munitions factories. You always go after the armory. Mm-hmm. Because if you incapacitate the weapon sources, you basically incapacitate the enemy. Right. And in World War II, several of the munitions factories were blown up. And now you're working during the middle of a major war. You're, you're only, you're not, you're, we, your skin is turning yellow from picric acid. You're playing with explosives all day. Well, you're packing explosives all day with very hazardous potentials to it in the middle of a war with a potential of enemy fire coming over you and blowing up your munitions factory. So there's a lot going on here oh yes yeah the odds are basically stacked against you yeah but things have to get done right exactly because it's for the good of the people to win the war right exactly or try to so if you were in regular contact with powdered tnt your skin would be very bright yellow and in fact these women and and even some men that were working there that were maybe not as able-bodied to go off to war 
they were called canaries. They were usually just called canary girls because it's mostly women. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just yellow, as I said. So it's not like, say, if you had jaundice where your skin has a yellow hue to it. It is bright yellow like a Simpson. Oh, my. Yeah. And in some cases, the coloring of the skin would actually wear off. If you stopped working with TNT, eventually your skin would return back to normal. However, it didn't stop being, it didn't stop people from dying from prolonged exposure to TNT, of course. Because there was residual effects. So I don't understand this in any way whatsoever. uh, To me, this works with hot sauce. Or works with spices like cayenne, but I don't see how this would work at all for explosives. One of the remedies for attempting to combat this particular poisoning was to have the women in the factories drink milk. Um, maybe drinking milk would absorb or maybe dilute the particles within your bloodstream but it's in the skin it's on the skin it's it's literally on the skin right you're not necessarily ingesting it unless it's a powder in your face but and i mean if you look at pictures of women packing this stuff and we'll have sources and our our notes and i'll post them online they're not wearing gloves there's no safety helmet there's no masks so technically you are likely going to be inhaling some of this dust into your your lungs and everything as well too but for the most part yeah you're touching it so i don't understand why you would drink milk to combat it yeah i mean i understand that maybe it could help clear the throat if possible because you've been inhaling all all that powder all that tnt crap in the factory but at the same time water would do the same effect Water does it better than milk, too. Yeah. I mean, it's what water is for, technically. At least within the human body, it's one of the major reasons for drinking it. I mean, I could also understand if people applied milk directly on the skin to maybe help draw out some of those uh, particles. But at the same time, too, it's not useful. I don't think... it's like, where, where did they come up with the thought that milk helps? I think maybe in certain, certain other types of poisonings, you would drink milk as if to help at maybe as an emetic or something, but I don't see how that would help in this case specifically. Maybe they were just trying to seek an outlet, maybe seek a solution, if, just throwing an arrow in the dark. If anyone listening knows, leave us a comment. I'm curious to know why why milk was particularly used because I don't see why how it would help. I'm I'm curious too. Mm-hmm. I get that they that some people in the very very ancient past bathed in milk because it made their skin fairer. Maybe they tried linking that thought to drinking the milk to make the skin fairer and paler instead of yellow. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know, but I mean, it didn't help. Oh, no. If at all. And so but apparently a prolonged exposure to picric acid actually leads to anemia, damage to the immune system, and liver failure. So TNT poisoning causes pretty much a whole body 
failure eventually. And it is actually estimated. Now I said that there's 700,000 to possibly a million women working at these munition factories throughout Great Britain. It is estimated that 400 women died specifically being linked to overexposure from TNT poisoning. So not everyone died because of it, but there's certainly quite a few more than enough that were had prolonged exposures. There's a direct link. For sure. Yeah. And according to one of my sources, there's a factory worker from the time named Ethel Dean, and she worked at the Woolwich Arsenal. And this is how she put it. Everything that that powder touches goes yellow. All the girls' faces were yellow all around their mouths. They had their own canteen in which everything was yellow that they touched. Everything that they touched went yellow. Chairs, tables, everything. I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here. This kind of reminds me of when you're doing copper plate printmaking, you actually have to use uh, what we call ferric acid, and it also dyes your skin yellow. So I'm not sure if there could be some correlation with the chemical structure of that, but that stuff is extremely difficult to come off. And... I know that even if you, you touched it and then touch other items in the nearby region or nearby area, it would also turn yellow. Hmm. But not probably not as pronounced as with the, the TNT. That is a really long link. <laughs> Let's check it out. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can definitely see, definitely see that. Yeah, that is Simpson colored yellow. That is. It's like if you've been playing in lily pollen all day. Oh, or just, just uh, not tree pollen. What was it? Um, what do what do we have? Cherry blossom pollen. Yes, which is usually like green and yellow. Oh yeah, yeah. The pollen from lilies is more of an orange yellowish, and I know. Being a floral worker, they really dye your skin and it takes multiple attempts to wash it off. Mm -hmm. They yeah. also stain your clothes too. Yes, yes. It's more like an ink at that point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So before I continue uh, to the end, I one of my sources actually has a 40-second audio clip from Ethel Dean herself talking about what it was like to work and try to clean yourself off because your skin was all yellow. Oh boy. And it's yellow all over. We were absolutely black on the color marks. And all the areas were high black areas, practically green. Yeah. Well, it wore off. Once you come out of it, it wore off. Within a, within a couple of weeks, it was gone. It wore right off it very quickly. But while you were in it, while you were working it, you were yellow. It didn't make no difference. I mean, you could wash and wash, it didn't make no difference. It didn't, didn't come off. Because your all your whole body was yellow. It was yellow all over. So I mean, it didn't. Uh, I mean, you got a bit of a bath. So I mean, you don't. Uh, it didn't wash off. But it wore off. It's, well, once you were out of it, it, it sort of got it. It got out the system, I suppose. That is very unfortunate. Yeah. I don't know how long it lasted or how long it took to wear off or to wear off 
But, she said about a couple of weeks, but knowing those who would have been exposed to even more of the stuff, it would have taken longer. Well, it certainly would take longer. Would you like to hear what happened if these women got pregnant? Uh, sure. I am morbidly curious. <laughs> it didn't harm the baby. No worries. But. It didn't end when they stepped away from packing the shells. Even if you pack, if even if you stepped away from packing the shells and your skin went back to a normal skin tone, you and but you were pregnant, you ran the risk of your baby also being bored with yellow skin. And they're known as canary babies. Huh. So, so it just kind of fed into fed into their skin. Well, as we said, in the pictures, there's no gloves, there's no goggles, there's no mask, there's no hat, there's no safety equipment. So as much as you're touching it, you're probably also inhaling it. Oh, most likely. Right. I mean, it's TNT dust. Of course right. it's going to get, it's, you, of course it's going to get in your lungs. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And when it gets in your lungs, it gets into your bloodstream. Mm-hmm. And if you're pregnant at that time, that bloodstream is shared with the fetus. Oh, yeah, for sure. And it probably absorbs into the skin, too, if anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an acid. It probably does. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So according to Gladys Sangster, who told a report to the BBC, nearly every baby was born yellow, uh, but it gradually fades away. She was actually a canary baby. Her mom worked in one of the munition factories. Huh, neat. Mm-hmm. And that's all I have on Canary Girls and blue, green, and yellow skin-toned people. Almost the primary colors. We just need red. Blood? The blood people. The blood cult. <laughs> no, that, uh, that's, that doesn't exist. Or does it? <gasps> you never know. There are so many cults going on. <laughs> <laughs> you never oh, know. for sure for sure <laughs> oh my goodness you never know so that's gonna do it for today's weird history what are your thought overall thoughts my overall thoughts would be that from a genetic standpoint it's fascinating from a scientific standpoint i'd like to dive more into its origins and from a personal standpoint, odd. But hey, this is the world we live in. We're all full of oddities. Everyone's full of oddities. And given how complex every individual's DNA structure is, you never know what they could be carrying. Recessively, recessively. Yes. If you want to chat with us some more about this, you can go to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash history explains it all. Our Instagram, which is history explains it all underscore podcast. If you have any episode suggestions or just want to leave us feedback, you can also email us at history explains all at gmail.com. And if you listen to us on Spotify, don't forget to check out our episode notes for any episode specific questions or polls that might pop out. And thank you, Caitlin, for joining me today. It would have been a very hey, no problem. History. Oh, <laughs> no, no, not an issue at all. I'm glad that you had me on here. Well, she's going to be back for another weird history, too. 
Spoiler alert. Thank you very much. Oh, the next one. I oh, love it. I've been waiting for this this particular one we just talked about, but I, I'd love to. I miss, I've missed my root histories. Well, it's very interesting. <laughs> I, I love to hear more about it. Well, you'll be back on soon. <laughs> I will. And uh, with that done, I guess I'll talk to everybody next week as we continue to trek through history. Bye-bye. Bye.